0: Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created emergingmanagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O. Dot org slash global dash investor. The Matimico team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegis. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegus has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So If you're tired of high-cost and time-consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at Tegas.co forward slash valuehive. That's Tegas.co forward slash valuehive. And As a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Today's episode is sponsored by the Capital Employed newsletter. If you're seeking new investing ideas, make sure you subscribe to Capital Employed, the newsletter that interviews small and micro cap fund managers who share their best ideas. They also publish a bi-weekly newsletter, which features a curation of excellent stock pitches from renowned investors, both private and professional. To receive this newsletter, visit www.capitalemployed.com. And add your email address to the growing list of active investors who get stock pitches sent directly to their inbox every week. The address again is www.capitalemployed.com. You can also find the link in the episode show notes. I would highly recommend subscribing. The newsletter is always a great read and filled with interesting off-the-beaten-path investment ideas from small cap and micro cap fund managers. And these ideas often are overlooked from the market and um, just overlooked from everybody else. And so you never know what you're going to find. And uh, click the link below in the show notes. Thanks. Lobo, I have followed you for a while on Twitter. And even before I got into the hard asset metals and mining space, you were an account that popped up sporadically on that on that for you tab, uh, whether it was you know someone that I followed had retweeted or you know you shared something interesting, and as I dove in and started really exploring the the mining and metal space, you became a go to resource for me to get up to speed on a lot of these things, and so I wanted to say thank you for doing that, um, and and it's and it's awesome to kind of have the chance to have a conversation with you, and so before we dive into a bunch of different topics on cost inflation, uh, idea sourcing due diligence. I want to get your background on how you stumbled into where you are now, which is, you know, independent speculator.com and doing all this, you know, publications and research. Like what was, what was life like before all that?
1: <laughs>
0: it's a, it, how long do you want this story? Uh, the story? Uh, <laughs> <all is>, <laughs> you
1: know, I, I met Doug Casey because we were both sort of the black sheep of our families. The, Atheist, anarchist, rabble rousers out there, Um, a similar mindset. And I was working in the not-for-profit sector, helping uh, various libertarian organizations raise money. And that's how I hooked up with Doug. Um, But I had a a personal epiphany. I I understood at some point, you know, I'm going around meeting all these rich people, asking them for big checks for all these worthy causes. And I realized that... um, they were interesting people and they were smart and they were creative and there wasn't really anything any of them had done that i didn't think i could do and so i had this moment where you know what it'd be a lot more fun to write checks than to ask for checks and i decided to get serious and learn about money i didn't you know i didn't presume anything i said yeah i'm, I'm going to take this serious i'm going to learn about money i'm going to make some money and lo and behold you know it was literally a couple months later that doug and david Goland, who had formed casey research reached out and and they needed some help and you know it's almost like one of those crazy videos on on YouTube right uh but I don't believe the mu- the universe magically responded to me it's just I would have said no to the job offer like before I made that decision or it says the Zen master says you know when the student is ready the master will appear it was just like that I was I was at a point where I was ready and David likes to say I took to it like a fish to water and it's I just, you know, I wanted to learn. It was so much fun. And what better teachers could I have than Doug Casey, David Galanda, give credit or do. Um, and Rick Rule also participated a lot. I mean, Rick, um, I will always owe him an enormous debt of intellectual gratitude because I didn't even work for him. And he spent time, spent a whole day once teaching me about the oil patch. I mean, just incredibly uh, generous on his part, you know, not, not entirely selflessly, but still generous, right? And uh, and so, yeah, I I wanted to learn about this and I and I didn't know anything about uh, I'd never owned a stock. I didn't know anything about geology, but I was so keen. I was so excited. Um, It was really with with, I remember. Let me put it this way and I'll wrap up with the story. It was about four years later, just like full on, you know, you think you're taking a drink from the garden hose, but it's the fire hose is that kind of experience. Right. And within four years. I remember Doug coming up to me once and saying he had some money stuck in some U.S. accounts and he needed some U.S. stock picks to put it into. And what would I recommend? And I, you know, you you my feet didn't touch the ground for like the next week. It, it's hard to imagine a higher compliment than for my teacher to come up to me and ask me for my opinion, right? You know, my my judgment. And it's been it's it's been a wonderful roller coaster ride there. I, I think some of the most painful lessons have been some of the most important ones. But here we are, almost twenty years later, and I am now I am the independent speculator.
0: I love I love stories like that because I have a I have such a like a fangirl obsession of of trying to understand how people went from not knowing anything to becoming an expert in their field, and uh, in particular, as I went from knowing nothing about mining January one of this year to trying to. You know, gain that experience, and so you mentioned having these really painful experiences. You know, these, these 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 painful lessons. What were those specifically, and then and then how did they how did they help you? You know, step up and level up in your experience. Oh, where to begin? <laughs> I made so many mistakes.
1: Um, uh, one one sticks. One early lesson that stuck really, you know, in my mind was we we were in the original Virginia Gold. Uh, which got taken over and then they spun out Virginia mines and then that got taken over and it's part of what is the Osisko empire now. Okay. Uh, but it was the original Virginia gold that made the Eleonore discovery in Quebec, you know, one of these giant high-grade discoveries, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, and it was a wonderful ride for shareholders. And when the takeover happened, um, we, had, we had better than a 10-bagger as I recall at the time. I, I can't take credit for that. It was already in the portfolio when I started with Casey Research. Uh, but at the time of the deal, um, you know, it seemed like that's it. You know, we've got—I think it was like twelve times our money. Let's take the money and run. We've got other things to get into. You know, the, and the, you know—we didn't necessarily want to own the larger company. We, we specialized and focused on, on juniors, right? Um, and so we we sold the position and moved on. And then later, I realized that the the offer was for shares um and so and then there was and there was this spin out and i didn't fully appreciate that i you know i i didn't it was a mistake I, I i treated it like a cash offer and we just booked the win and moved on whereas if we had held we would have got shares in the new company which we could have sold and then the spin out and you know it would have been a happier ending for all concerned if we had held uh, and i just didn't know i didn't know and uh maybe there was a little bit of insufficient adult supervision (laughs) at the time um and that did not serve our readers well stuff like that really really sticks with me um very very briefly there's a there's an essay on the free side of the website called my two greatest mistakes and what you can learn from them and and that was one of you know the short version is best practices are there for a reason and it's you know it's fun to say oh these guys are mavericks they're breaking the rules you know they're going to do something extraordinary well you know but those rules they're there for a reason you know the go big or go home rule it statistically it makes sense and in in this particular case the two lessons were people who build mines without full feasibility studies and they had good arguments for why they were doing it one was much smaller and you know it just they would have spent more money on the feasibility study than the mine was maybe worth. Uh, And the other one was much bigger and it was deep and you had to, you know, they would have spent hundreds of millions drilling it off in order to do the feasibility study fully. And they said, well, you know, if we're going to if we're going to go underground to explore this, we might as well build a production size shaft. Right. And then, well, if we have a production size, shaft, we might as well produce the gold we know is there. Right. And bootstrap ourselves up. So both of these were disastrous. And there's a reason why we call it a bankable feasibility study. Because the bank isn't going to take a PFS or a PEA. You know, the, the bank, if they're going to lend you money, hundreds of millions of dollars, or even billions of dollars for a, one of these big copper projects, you know, the study needs to be pretty darn good. And even then, it's only an estimate, or or as Monty Python says, only a model. Um but so but, but the stories were so persuasive, like you know, you could just almost taste it. In the, in the case of the small one, the gold outcrop, you could just Go in with a backhoe, you know, just scoop it up and make the money and then pay for the growth and all that. Uh so great, great excuses, but in both cases, it was they were just utter disasters. You you got in and there was something you didn't realize or wasn't in the model. Um, and that has become a real no-go for me. You know, that when companies say, Oh, well, you know, it, it would just cost too much, it's it's gonna be easy, we're just gonna do it then, you know, good luck with that. Some can actually do that. You know, maybe I I, I would have to invent a number, but it, it's something on the order of 1 in 20 or 1 in 40, maybe even, that can do that. But mostly it's failures. And that's, so there's things like that, that, you know, that's so painful. And, and you hear about it from your readers. And if you give a shit about your readers, pardon my French, but, you know, I you know you hear the anguish, and you know I lost this money, you bastard, blah blah blah. And I don't care about them calling me a bastard. Maybe I was if I screwed up. But, you know, I, I caused these people who trusted me, and that is hard to swallow. So so that I I never forget things like that.
0: It's hard to swallow, but at the same time, it's it's an incredibly valuable privilege because it it forces you to really really do the work. And that's something that you know we can we can dive into now. I mean, your 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 Twitter handle I think is is at due diligence guy or something, and uh, and so like clearly like that's it's very important to you. And so when 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 I think of the word due diligence, I might think of something different than if you know Joe Smith over here or Sally May over here thinks of the word due diligence. So you know, to Lobo, when someone says you know, hey, I want you to do due diligence on this name, what does that mean to you? That's actually.
1: I don't know if you are as insightful as that question sounds or not, but that's actually a very insightful question because it really does mean different things to, I mean, think about it this way, a Sequoia capital put, I don't know how many hundreds of millions into FTX and their due diligence wasn't just some Lobo wandering around the jungles of Colombia looking at rocks, right? I I don't know what their due diligence was, but I'm I'm sure they spent more than I did right on, you know investing a mining opportunity and, st- and why did they get them right it, they, you know they still bought into a huge scam yeah well that's not proven in court yet but st- let's just stipulate that for now you see what i'm saying right and so i've had people say "Well, wow, you know what kind of due diligence can you do you're just this you're just a wandering wolf what do you know well my pushback to that is at the very least i do try and i do everything that i can do to prove the story i don't just go to the company's website read their website and read their powerpoint and say oh okay that looks good <laughs> i i wherever possible i will go to the project and i will go on the ground and i'm not sneaky per se i don't i don't try to set anybody up for failure or catch them out um but i don't i, I assume bullshit and and give them the opportunity to prove otherwise and i will go uh places sometimes and maybe arrive before management expects me or stay later and do my own due diligence without them looking over my shoulder. Um, It uh, it happens that I speak French and Spanish, so that works well for me in West Africa and most of Latin America. A little bit of German, not really enough to get around, but I'm not interested in coal mines in Germany, a bit of Russian, that does help in former Soviet republics. And you can talk to people you know, without management's, uh, never mind supervision, but translation, right? Yeah. I can talk directly to people. Well, what do you think about this? And it's funny, even even guys that are hired by the company or gals to, you know, drive the four-wheeler around or something and show you around, if you talk to them in their own language and you say, well, you know, will your will your friends in the village nearby really feel excited if this mountain turns into a hole in the ground? well i don't know you know there's jobs that we'll see you know you know you'll actually get stuff that'll never be in the PowerPoint. all you got to do is is ask and you know what if you can't go flying all around the world the way i do to do this stuff you can and i think you should go to these mining conferences and meet the team there and i don't take payment from any of the mining conferences to do referrals some of them have programs like that but i don't take the money but i actually do think this is valuable because you can go and if you talk to the CEO and you ask him just basic questions like, you know, what are you going to do this year? What's it going to cost? How much do you have in the bank? And he's like, oh, you know, I don't know, man. Uh, let me ask my CFO and I'll get back to you on that. You know, that's bullshit. He, sh- he either is incompetent because he should know how much money he's got and what his budget is or he's lying. You know, I mean, he does know and he just want, doesn't want to say so. So, you know, if, if you. You don't have to have decades of experience in the mining business to get the feel of you're talking to a used car salesman and if you get that feeling that's significant that's due diligence and that's better than just sitting at home and looking at the powerpoint saying yeah that looks okay okay maybe it's not perfect maybe you didn't spend millions of dollars on your due diligence the way sequoia did but theirs wasn't perfect either so you know don't use that as an excuse don't give up anything you can do you should do and because of my experience and my connections in the community, my network, I'm I'm able to do a bit more due diligence, perhaps, than the average investor. But the main thing is, you know, don't chicken out, don't wimp out, don't make excuses. You, you want to make millions of dollars. This this is work. Do the work.
0: Yeah. Well, I like I like the idea of the uh, you know, you assume bullshit and then you and then you <laughs> work backwards from there. Basically, yeah. you know letting the management company dig themselves out of the pile of shit if they if they if they can do it but let's let's assume because i want to i want to make this applicable to let's say a generalist right because i think a lot of my listening community they're probably generalists maybe leaning towards some more hard asset stuff if they kind of follow my personality and they're like okay like i see some long tailwinds like maybe i'll spend more time here if you can't go to the mines and let's say you can go to maybe one conference a year or something like that just through the documentation whether it's through the pre feasibility studies the feasibility studies um, even sometimes within their presentations the assumptions they make for the metal prices like what are you constantly looking for for both like red and green flags as you go through that process well, there's,
1: there's a lot but i think just having asked that question you've already done your audience a service because i mean i don't think we'd have time i mean <laughs> If, if you put a feasibility study in a spreadsheet, the number of lines there, the number of variables that you plug in mm-hmm. the model is enormous, right? So you can't go through all that. But, like you know, there's some pretty obvious, just, just asking the question is a head start. Some of the key variables would be metal price assumptions. And, and, you know, and it's, there's a trap here, particularly for bulls, and especially, you know, gold and silver bugs. And I don't know, uranium bugs lately have become even more fanatical. But you know, they're, they're not a lot of like copper bugs. People like copper, but they're usually not that fanatic about it. Or I've never heard anybody talk about a, a zinc bug, right? <laughs> it doesn't really happen. Yeah. But people get excited about their favorite metal or commodity or something. And that gives them, um, you know, a bias towards things that reinforce their idea. So if you're a bull on gold, and you think gold, you know, it's manipulated, and it should be $5,000 in an ounce, and it's going to 50 or whatever, you know. And so you look at the price assumption in this feasibility study, and it says $1,900 gold. And you might, because of your druthers, you might say, oh, you know, 1,900, that's not, that's nothing, you know, it's going way higher than that. So that's fine. It's not fine. Like, you know, maybe six months ago, that seemed fine when we were just over 1,900, uh, you know, looking at 2000, but now we're under 1900. And that assumption, you know, a spot price that is, that is lower than the price assumption in your feasibility study is a big problem. And so you, you want a conservative price assumption. And the longer the mine life, you know, you know, one of these multi-decade copper mines or something, it has to be very conservative. Because over those decades, you know, the, the price may go up. It might go down. Your costs are always going to go up. They're never going to come down. Um, so so that sort of thing you want to look at. You, you want to look at, uh, you know, who did it? Are, you know, how close are they to management? How independent is the QP? You, if you can, you want to look at the history of the, of the firms that signed off on it. There are some that are highly respected. There are others, and I'm not going to name names, that are associated with, feasibility studies that have been forcibly withdrawn by the exchanges. You can and should make a list when that happens, when somebody has to restate their feasibility study or pull back a resource estimate, you should make a note of which engineering firm signed off on those that got smacked down by the regulators. Um, and. Well, there's, there's just so many things you want to look at political risk, You know, how much is acceptable to you, um, oh <laughs> it, it, the, the, it's it's myriad there is um sorry but there is another free resource on the website we have a number of things that i call them cheat sheets so yeah. if you go to our website and you type cheat sheet in the little magnifying glass thing at this upper right uh they pulled up a number of different free reports you can read one of them is a cheat sheet on feasibility studies and it'll walk you through some of the key variables
0: one pushback i'll have on the metal price and like kind of the implied metal price in some of these studies is you could say, okay, if you like, let's say I'm bullish copper. And I think that by 2030, I mean, you've seen some of these crazy charts, right? But by 2030, let's say there's, there's a big enough deficit where it's, you know, 15, 20% of total demand. And I think copper has got to be seven to ten dollars a pound in that environment to, to, to clear the market. Why, why is it so dangerous or wrong for me to look at kind of these companies and put in a $7 or a $10 copper price. If that's kind of like what I'm anchoring to, you know, three to five years out. Like if I'm bullish on copper, no, I understand I'm the to anchor, but yeah. it's, 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 it's just give and take. It's like, I get what you mean by being conservative. But then at the other hand, it's like, I only really want to be in this space. If I've got a long-term bullish view on the underlying.
1: Okay. But two answers. Yeah. Uh, is in that environment in your $7 copper environment or $10 copper environment you're probably looking at $150 oil and your steel and inputs other costs are going to be up. I mean yeah. people forget that commodities tend to move together. You know, I believe that we are in a commodity super cycle and I don't think it's a new one or it's starting now. I think we we these are multi-decade cycles and it, we've just been through a downturn, you know, nothing goes up in a straight line. So we've been in a pullback in what I think is a much larger commodity super cycle so that environment is a much higher cost environment your input costs as well so that's just you could just put a line under it that way but i think there's a more fundamental way of looking at it and that is basically crap is crap in a higher overall environment the crap is still crap and if there's not crap to invest in if there's you know a grade a deposit that you know looks like it's moving ahead now if i can invest in that why would I invest in a marginal one that might still be crap in a higher cost environment? I mean, and you look at some of these and some of these deposits, you know, land banks. There are some of them that have been known for for decades, and I don't just mean one or two, but like five or seven, you know. And and every bull cycle, the metals prices go up, and somebody dusts these things off and says, "Oh, look, we got a billion tons of of 0.2 copper here." And, and at $10 copper, this is going to make money. It's going to be a cash cow. It's going to go, you know, and every cycle that happens in every cycle, that copper stays in the ground because it's still crap. Pardon my um, enthusiasm here, well, but you know, just <laughs> just don't fall for the used car salesman. Quality always matters. And um, so so that's really what underlies the conservative price assumptions. It's not just oh, we're being conservative. It's not a mathematical thing. it's it's a real world bloody nosed experience based recognition that crap is crap.
0: And I think the other thing too, just from like a more qualitative aspect, is if you have a management team that is comfortably being conservative, uh, you know even even to a fault, like they assume three twenty five copper, you know three fifty copper when copper's at over four dollars then you kind of have an idea of of, of the competition. Yeah, there's extra upside. If the
1: project works at 350 copper or $3 copper, it's gonna gush cash. You know, that's all the more reason to buy. And I mean, look at it this way to, to switch commodities on, you know, not I'm not plugging any one company and I'm not telling anybody to go buy Barrick, but just what? I use this as an example because Bristol has for like 15 years or whatever it is, He's been using $1,200 or $1,300 gold as a limit for anything that he's willing for Barrick to get into. Um, and thank goodness for shareholders that he has because they've got their posteriors handed to them in so many different ways. They've they've screwed up in some things or they've had bad luck with political risk. I mean, Papua New Guinea going cannibal on them was not their fault. Um, but it happened to them, right? And And if they had said, well, you know... Gold's at two thousand dollars an ounce, so we're going to up our our, you know, our cut off to eighteen hundred, right? And they brought on more marginal assets, and then they got all these unexpected body blows, political risk here, seizures there, all you know, boom, boom, boom. And they had allowed their margins to narrow with higher cost projects. You know, they could be bankrupt now, and it's only because he was such a tight fist. That he, you know, even at two thousand dollar gold, like he wouldn't let he wouldn't go higher than a thirteen hundred dollar gold price assumption. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not telling anybody to buy this company or that it's the right. greatest stock out there. I'm just saying that probably saved that company. That conservatism probably saved that company from all the bad stuff that happened to them.
0: Well, you know what? It's funny you mention that because I just and part of like part of the reason why I love doing these podcasts and talking with people is. It allows me to, to think out loud and maybe even connect a couple of synapses that are still there. And I just, so yesterday I went to the uh, FRPH investor day, which is a completely different, you know, it's real estate, it's real estate investment. Um, you know, I own shares, not, you know, no, nothing's investment advice, but I went there. And so I had, you know, I had the ideas of cap rates and interest rates and things like that in my head. And as you were talking, this idea of, the embedded price or the, you know, the assumed underlying commodity price, you can almost think of it as like a cap rate on your investments. And so like in real estate, like if you say, if, if, if you're a real estate firm, you say, okay, like I'm only going to buy things that are like a seven cap or higher and interest rates go from four to three to two, you can kind of get sucked into the thinking of, oh, okay. Now, instead of buying seven caps, I'm going to buy five caps. I'm going to buy four and a half caps because my costs are so low. But then when that flips, you lose all your margin of safety. And so in a way, like that implied price is basically keeping that margin of safety in there. So that way, when you're underwriting projects, you're still underwriting for this threshold target, regardless of what else happens.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. There, There is, you know, to be fair, there is one way out of this trap, and that is, if you do have um if you have a really sustained secular bull market in something that can hold the prices high enough long enough that if you have a short payback time and this this is we didn't mention it earlier but like this is one of those things you look for you you want a short payback time the shorter the better uh anything above two years is not necessarily no go above three years is really difficult but you know, above two years is questionable. Less than two years is great. There are very few projects that can pay back in a year, and none of them are big base metal. You know, if you're if you're talking, you know, a multi-decade mine life for one of these big copper projects, you have to go longer. Yeah. But which is one reason why so many things stay in the ground. Like, let's say you're in, uh, you know, six-dollar copper for a couple years. If you could build your copper mine and pay it back in a couple years, and then copper prices go down, it doesn't matter. You, I mean, that doesn't matter. But you can handle a downturn. But yeah. you've paid the bank back, you've, you've paid the mine off. And okay, maybe you have to cut dividends or something. But you're, you're much more focused on your cash costs at this point. Right. Or you're, you're all right, you're all in sustaining costs, but it's still, you know, after payback, right? So it's a whole different kettle mm-hmm. of fish. Um so that's if if you can do that, if you have something that has been stuck in the ground but you, there's maybe a higher grade portion of it that can pay back the mine quickly. So a different mine plan, going in and looking at just the higher grade part, getting the payback, and then you mine the rest for whatever decades are left. You know That could happen, there, there, there are ways out of this, but it's difficult. And basically the bigger the mine, the harder it is to do, which is one reason why you'll see this happen mostly in the monetary metals. You know, Gold and silver mines, the, the value is so concentrated that it's much easier to build even a large mine, you know, rel- you know, not as big as a big copper mine, but but a relatively large gold or silver mine. Um, if it's high margin enough, can have a payback of a year or eighteen months, or or often less than two, even for a substantial mine because they're that rich. And it's much easier to say, okay, in this environment, you know, gold is likely to stay plus or minus nineteen hundred for the next couple of years at least. Whereas if you're saying, okay, what happens over the next 10 or 20 years, that's much more difficult. And it's, you know, so sorry, I got off the side of side of the side road here. Um
0: No, I mean, I think I think it I think it was a I think it was a great, great tangent. And it and it actually brings up the question, because we bounce around between gold and copper and silver and uranium and, and all these things. How do you because you mentioned way earlier in the in the in the show that you kind of inherited this portfolio when you when you when you started so you inherited a you know a list of names a, a portfolio of mining companies across you know whether it's junior exploration producer senior producer so at some point i assume that over time you had to kind of turn the portfolio over as you found ideas as you put in your research and recommendations and so what I want to understand is how did you prioritize and how did you source these ideas across so many commodities? Because that's one thing that I struggle with. And I've struggled with this for a while. And I've mentioned it in podcasts before, is like just this like FOMO of like I'm diving <laughs> the, like I'm diving into one thing, but then I'm missing something else. Like if I study copper, I'm missing out on uranium. If I'm if I'm studying uranium, I'm missing out on rare earths. And it's like this this tiresome effort. So how do you how do you systematize that?
1: Okay, well, two two separate answers. One is uh, yes. At Casey Research, I came into an existing portfolio, and I really, you know, I was hired as an editor just to help write the letter. and And Brent Kirk Cook worked with us at the time. Rick contributed ideas. Doug contributed ideas, and it was my job to render it all in English and make it easy for the readers to read. I, I was a writer, not an analyst or, you know, a financial guy or a geologist. Um, and over the years I learned and it, and it did become my portfolio. A lot of it was just pruning and, but even as it became my portfolio, it was, I probably, I mean, easily 20, I started in 2004. By 2008, it was really, I was doing the letter, but I still had lots of input from the Casey team and the Casey consensus was important. I certainly wasn't gonna go out and buy a bunch of copper stocks if Doug was bearish on industrial metals or something like that. So for for I would say the whole time I was at Casey Research, I had a, this, this team around me that was researching and looking at opportunities. And I would say that it really starts with the macro. and you know I' sometimes I make fun of macro because it's so big picture, it's so theoretical, it doesn't help us decide what to do right now. Um, but if you have macro that's identified trends that are ongoing, then it helps you decide which commodities to be in. So, you know, I have a macro thesis right now that the the world is in a deepening global recession, that the United States will not be spared. And so that makes life easy for me. I'm not looking at copper as much as I'm bullish on copper farther ahead or lithium. I'm not looking at any of these industrial stocks. Yeah. Uh, you know, the only exception is uranium um, because it it's different. It, um, You know, the audience probably knows, you know, baseload power, all that stuff, right? The the case for uranium is not just, oh, I'm bullish energy. The case for uranium is idiosyncratic to uranium. Agreed. You know, the demand that is already baked in the cake and the supply that isn't there, regardless of what the energy sector as a whole does, like they're separate. Um, So I I guess that's what I learned then, but I I did want to say, you know, uh, Doug Casey's newsletter was the international speculator. In 2015 um, there was changes at Casey research and by 2018 I had I had helped the transition and I went and became the independent speculator and I did ask Doug before I did that he gave me his blessing to honor his uh, his path blazing there with with the name of my company my letter um, and so my current portfolio is all mine there I mean I have a team now that I've been building up but I had no team it was just me. Yeah. And basically it was it was kind of like kid in the candy shop. I had been writing about these stocks for years under prior management. I wasn't allowed to invest in any of the stocks that I liked. In fact, I had to sell all the stocks that I liked almost at the bottom in 2015. It was very painful. Wow. Um, but now I'm the independent speculator and I could buy whatever I wanted. You know, the SEC is happy as long as I disclose to my readers that I, I own something. And my disclosure just isn't just oh by the way I might own this. My disclosure is this is what I own. My my portfolio in the Independent Speculator is the portfolio of stocks I like enough to put my own money into. So at first it was easy to build a portfolio. There was a you know it was a handful that I knew I wanted to own. Like I believed in already for X Y Z reasons. The macro was there. The companies were there. All the boxes were ticked. I liked them a lot. And then after that. It's, I'm, I'm kind of going long here, but I'll say two things. It starts, starts with the macro. Like, I'm, I'm not going to put more money into something that I'm bearish on. right? Um, but the other aspect, and I've talked about this in a number of interviews, but for your audience, that you may not have heard this before. I'll risk repeating myself because I think it's really, really important. And that is that a, a truly great speculation is a very rare thing. I get asked all the time, you know, what's your portfolio allocation? What percentage should it be gold? What percentage silver or uranium or copper or whatever? And I don't have a percentage. There is no ideal percentage. Even, you know, one size doesn't fit all applies yeah. here. But if, aside from that, if I had some idea that I should have 20% in silver and I have 20%, and a really great silver play comes along. Am I really gonna say, no, no, I got 20% silver, I don't want no more silver? Of course not. It, it, so my the composition of my portfolio evolves significantly over you know where I find what I consider to be a great speculation, what ticks off all the boxes, Doug Casey's eight P's of resource stock evaluation. I still use those. Um, and so I might end up getting more heavy in one direction than I would have thought. I'm very heavy. I've got more uranium in my portfolio now than I ever thought I would and that I've ever owned before because I'm extremely bullish and I've been looking for more opportunities in that direction. Now, when the markets change after the recession, I'll probably end up having more copper than uranium and maybe even it'll work out to where I'm taking profits on my uranium stocks, rotating them into the copper stocks now that they're beat up and, you know, after the recession and I'm so bullish on what happens afterwards, right? It could... That, that could actually be the, the perfect recipe to follow. But that's, that's how it goes. And I suppose if I found, oh my gosh, I've got 90% uranium, then I'd have to do something, right? But that's <laughs> never happened. The reality is that you know, you're aware of different opportunities, and, and your allocation might you know, expand or contract in different directions as you focus your efforts in different directions. But don't, don't be procrustian about this. Don't chop off. A, a really great opportunity because no no man i'm overweight in my portfolio I, I just i think that's a huge mistake it's so hard to find a really great one even the ones that seem great six months later half of them you know the, the honeymoon's over not so great so um yeah i i, I think that's a mistake it, when you see uh, you know they can't all be once in a lifetime opportunities but if you have you know that once in a few years opportunity at least kind of sensation you know, don't miss out
0: and you, you you alluded to kind of this not really a pair trade, but like this kind of perfect uh, perfect scenario where you ride your uranium all the way up, you know, take some profits on the way, use those profits to funnel into some copper ideas. And so like I wanna I wanna peel that another layer deeper and say, if that happens, and let's assume that at that point you're ready to go all in, air quotes, on a lot of these copper, you know, plays, like in this this theme what does that look like? Is it junior explorers? Is it mid-tier producers? And then how do you decide position sizing within each of those buckets to express that view?
1: Well, again, the one size doesn't fit all has to apply. I firmly believe that the very first thing anybody should do when they're getting into this space is to look at the mirror and have a good hard conversation with themselves about how much risk they're willing to take you know, could they really put serious money into something and see it drop fifty percent and then buy more? And you know, your conventional stop losses can have you selling at actually what turns out in hindsight to be the perfect time to build a position, and and that's common in mining stocks. I remember in in securities analysis, Messrs. Graham and Don even said specifically that their style of of, of you know investment. Due diligence didn't apply in the mining space because the whole commodity sector was just too volatile for for their method to work. Um, so, you, so you know, you you really need to be honest with yourself about that. And if you're more risk averse, then you want to stick with the big go-to names. You want to stick with the more stable producers, and even those will give you gray hairs or or remove hairs if they're already gray. Uh, you know, that's plenty of volatility on on that score. If if you're very risk averse. Um, you know, if you're 19, no kids, no, you know, if, and if you wipe out, you can just rebuild, you know, you, you might want to completely go to the very early stage of exploration, pre-discovery, find a bunch of prospect generators, you know, or, you know, companies that are penny stocks, literally, um, you know, that, that have easy 10 bagger potential if they deliver, or, you know what, you know, You know, people talk about how much crazy money there's to make on crypto and all that and fine but it actually is not a once in a lifetime event it actually is a periodic event in the mining space it's it's a it's i would say every year there are 10 baggers or 20 baggers that's common actually now it's it's not common to, to know which one's going to do it in advance but <laughs> yes. it's common in the space to find you know bitcoin in 2017 type gains that happens every year in mining this is a reason why i think People who made money in crypto should consider diversifying into mining stocks. But beyond that, there are periodically, you know, 20, 40, 50 baggers. And the and the mythical one, there are 100 baggers in this space. Now, those are not common. They don't happen every year or even every 10 years, but they do happen. Doug Casey has bagged two of those that I know of. I've which seen
0: were, which which ones were those, by the way.
1: Uh one of them was um the big scam from the gold movie i'm i'm drawing a blank briex i've never heard of that oh what, have you seen the movie gold with um no should i well i think the real story is probably more exciting than the movie yeah. it's you know the the geologist actually falls out of the helicopter and all this stuff but yeah the company's named X, google it sometimes huge scam um doug was in it around a buck and I remember reading, I saw this in the newsletter in the print. I you know I saw him headed for the exits at 125. The stock went to 250 before the scam was, re- you know. So he didn't top ticket like he left money on the table. But how many people you know a day late? There was was too late, right? Um, the other one was, I think it might have been Farallon or Nebsen. No, not Nebsen. There was an oh no no no. Voise's Bay nickel.
0: Hmm.
1: Who had Boise's Bay? It was something with an N. But anyway, uh, was,
0: that so, was that or was that was that a legit?
1: No, no, that was real. Boise's Bay is still a mine, and it and it was oh, it was diamond fields or something like that. They were looking for diamonds, and and it was an act. It was an accident, in that like the geologists, they're flying back from another failed field season, and the geologist sees a gossan on the side of the mountain has the pilot set the chopper down take some samples high you know high-grade nickel and it led to one of the the biggest uh nickel discoveries in the world up there that's a, that's a world-class mine wow so so doug didn't know that he you know he he, he didn't know that was going to happen he was in on the diamond story and just happened to own the stock and it went you know bonkers wow. um the other one is Campo Morado in, in Mexico. And if the company owned it at a time, it was called Farallon. And I'm not sure that was a hundred bagger. And I'm not sure that it was Farallon when Doug owned it initially. I just remember Farallon had that asset when I I actually went and looked at the at the place. But anyway, my my point is that hundred baggers happen. But nobody knows what we're gonna happen. Even Doug didn't know these things were gonna happen. He just had the guts. And the capital to cast a wide net on penny stocks and it, i mean it's it's very difficult for a nice respectable five or ten dollar stock to be a hundred bagger it's much easier for a for a stock trading at five cents to be a hundred bagger a material discovery from a company that has a market cap of three million bucks or something right you know that's huge so I, I i want to be very clear here i'm not saying hey get in the mining you'll make hundred baggers. I've never had a hundred backer. I think my best has been 20 odd times my my earnings or, or initial price. But um, but they exist and if you if you never play the game, you never have a chance at going there. So just just keep it under consideration. If you think like, "Oh, I wish I had bought Bitcoin at, you know, in 2010 at, you know, under $100 or whatever, you know, that's never coming back. That's never happening again. But in the mining space, this really does happen periodically. And on the way, you know, you may never get a hundred bagger, but you know what? A few ten and twenty baggers, you know, they go a long way to making that
0: sting uh, feel a little bit better. So, how do you think about portfolio position sizing, right? If you're if you're on the more junior end of the spectrum, you're playing kind of with call options, and so I assume smaller positions. But as you scale into like these larger producers, whether it's a southern copper. Whether it's, you know, someone like even even Glencore, like a major, major asset, um, major billion dollar company. Like, how is that? Is it a barbell approach? How do you how do you do it? Yeah, no,
1: I don't do a barbell approach. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is, if you if you look at the barbell, you know, if you average it mathematically, then you, what you want to do is go for the mid tiers and, you know, less less risky than the juniors but more upside than the majors and it makes yeah. the, the argument there's a case to be made for shooting for the middle but actually I think a, a barbell approach would be better you know anchor your portfolio with some of the bigger ones that are less risky and if, as long as you're right about the commodity they they should do well and then swing for the bleachers with a few smaller ones and yeah um, but but in in practice I'd go back to what I said before a truly great speculation is so rare that that's my top priority, and I'm not turning my back on one, whatever, you know, is in my portfolio. Now, that having been said, the commodities are so cyclical. And you see even the best of the companies in the space, they will cycle high and low and high and low again and again. So imagine if you had a company that you're just not worried about it ever going away, it's going to be it's been there for decades, it's going to be there for decades. If you could buy every time it was at a cyclical low and sell at the high and just keep doing that, you could actually have a 10 bagger over the decades or something. Just just keep doing it. Now, nobody knows that. Nobody can bottom tick or top tick the markets. I'm not pretending I can do that or anybody. But I'm just saying, conceptually, there's a case to be made for some of these bigger companies, even as a speculator, if they happen to go on sale at stupid cheap prices. Like if there's a market meltdown or for some other reason they hit one of these lows. And it's one of these big companies. I'm not going to name any names here. But you're just... not worried about this company going away. It's not some junior that's going to run out of money, or maybe it's a royalty play that, you know, they're going to make money almost no matter what. And here it is at a five-year low. Well, I don't know where the bottom is, but screw that. It's a five-year low, you know, this company's not going away. It's going to go up at some point, right? So, you know, a play like that is unlikely to give you a 10-bagger or more, forget that. But it's also it's it's unlikely to hurt you the, the odds of coming out ahead on a, on a speculation like that if you just buy low and, and wait until you're right the odds are actually quite good that you'll do very well and this happens over and over again over the years so you know if 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 you're just getting into it it's hard to be patient with this but if you've been doing this for a while then you know what I'm talking about and and so i think even for uh, a more risk high or higher risk appetite speculator there's a case to be made and basically it's just easy money it's relatively low risk easy money when one of these go-to names is on sale at stupid cheap prices
0: so what does stupid cheap mean to you how would you define that it would mean yes it's it's interesting that you ask that because
1: it's i don't have a nav model or a multiple like that um Because that's comparable to others, and, and often they're not comparable. Right. So I'm looking at um, at least a 52-week low or a multi-year low, it, and and that's in the context of these larger, supposedly safer companies. Right. Yep. I mean, I I remember, um, but but just basically, if you're sitting there going, "Holy cow! I can't believe X is on sale for Y," you know, that's stupid cheap. And I'll give you an example because it's gone, and that would be uh, uh, Freeport was uh, in the crash of 2008. Um, sorry, no, not Freeport. It was Tech. Get my, get my bearings straight here. It was Tech in the crash of 2008, Tech um, And that was a $50-plus stock. And it fell to 3 bucks and change. Or maybe even broken below 3 bucks in the crash of 2008 and i remember going to my my fellows at Casey research and say look at this it's freaking tech for 3 bucks we should buy this i mean that was a classic example of stupid cheap now at the time th- there were reasons for it it wasn't just the crash of 2008 they had debt covenants and there was there was legitimate worry about the company but i'm thinking it's tech it's not going away and okay we wanted we liked gold and silver better it was a copper predominantly play but it was just, I was like a kid jumping up and down. I needed to go to the bathroom. Like, come on, it's tech, it's on sale. It's, it's, you know. But I didn't carry the day on that one. And tech went over 60 bucks in the recovery after the crash wow. of 2008. So I didn't realize that. I didn't write it up in the newsletter. But I had the idea, and it was my idea. And if I had done it, that would have been a 20-bagger
0: yeah i feel that way about glencore like i don't own glencore right now obviously you know again not investment advice but glencore to me is one of those businesses where if it ever just kept falling and got to a price i'm like talk about one of the most powerful influential businesses in the world like
1: yeah no i understand and and let me not to again because my clients pay me for my evaluations of mining companies so i try not to give it way no i get it. i get it but, but but just as an example in for the broader audiences out there i mean suppose it was amazon i think amazon falls in this category i don't own amazon i'm not plugging amazon but amazon's not going away i mean the government may slap them around with with nuisance you know monopoly lawsuits or whatever but you know amazon everybody orders from amazon i mean it's like You know, the the food store business is not going away, right? It's gas stations aren't going away for a while at least, you know, like these businesses are still going to be there. So if there is a market crash and you can get something like Amazon for pennies on the dollar, like even me, a mining guy, I could imagine going there just because it's stupid cheap.
0: It's funny how easy that sounds. But then in practice, like, like it's like, like, it's not like just, just, just wait for an event a market event that hits all stocks regardless of idiosyncratic risk or you know reward and just scoop them up right like like it sounds so easy but then in practice like not only not only do is it is, is it hard to do when it happens but then you waste a lot of time and capital and i'm speaking for myself here so when i say you it's me you waste a lot of time and capital like trying to fit like square ideas into round holes
1: well it's, it's not just that there's also the falling knife problem. Yes, right? So and it's it is difficult and and beyond the falling knife problem it's not just fear. There are a lot of contrarian investors that that get it. But it, so it's not it's not that they catch the falling knife and get caught and get hurt and then they get angry and they're out. It's that they they see something that looks stupid cheap and so they go in and then it gets even stupider cheaper <laughs> or whatever the correct expression would be right? And then they don't have any money. They've already, you know, if it's particularly if you have like a multiple phase of waterfalls, like 2008 was bad. But if you look at the history of 1929, obviously, I wasn't there. My beard isn't that long, (laughs) even if it's white. Um, But you look at the, you know, the, the history of the 1920 and it just it was so much longer than any of the crashes anybody alive has seen like nobody alive has been through something like that. and and there were bear traps in there, or they bull traps in the bear market. Like, there were rebounds. And, and, and early on, the first dead cat bounce, as I recall, was like a 50% retracement or something. Like, you know, the, the classic definition of a new bull market is 20% from the bottom. Yep. It's not a bad rule of thumb. But if, if you acted on that in 1930, you would have been creamed. Because, you know, like 80% of the decline was still ahead of you at that point. And then the year after year right it was just like every time you thought it can't go lower like i like if you didn't get suckered into that 1930 rally and you put it off in like late 1930 or early 1931 you're thinking yeah i've been smart i've been disciplined it's pennies on the dollar i'm going all in and then it went lower again Yeah. so so that's a big problem and for people that get it like never mind the mainstream they're not going to have this problem but i think people in our audience or at least my audience are vulnerable to this problem. Like you're a you get it, you see a fire sale and you're willing to take that risk and go out on the limb to, to participate. And then what happens if the best opportunities come along and you're all in already, right? You know, you. you
0: yeah.
1: so I, I remember that happening in 2008. I remember people saying at, at the bottom, like late November, early December 2008, I remember readers saying, yeah, I put out a, this like this list of best buys, like 10 best buys on large capital letters. You know, And it turned out to be at the bottom of the market. I'm not saying I knew that that was the bottom of the market. I'm just saying I put out this list. And I remember people writing in saying, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I like those companies, but I just don't have any more money. I've already bought at higher prices. And I, I, I can't take advantage of these opportunities. And boy, that was painful. And then later when those stocks went up, I mean, they all did. <laughs> I mean, th- that was agonizing for those people who saw the opportunity weren't able to act. So I've again gone off the side of the side road here for you, but for what it's worth, um, <laughs> Well, I'm not sure where, what my point is now, actually, but but uh, yeah, you you want to be careful. You, basically, I guess I don't remember what the question was, but my my point at the end of this diatribe is. I never go all in. I always want to have some dry powder because you never know what will happen. If I ever, like, use my last dime on a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and I was suddenly all in, I would go sell blood. I'd have a garage sale. I don't know. I'd do something and raise more cash ASAP because you you never want to be without – you don't want to be paralyzed if a truly once-in-a-lifetime opportunity does come up.
0: Well, that's why I like Paul Tudor Jones, his, his quote. Uh, Losers, average losers, and I just think, you know, again, like I, I, I have a lot of trading influence, market wizards kind of trading influence as well as that investor contrarian deep value. And so like that, like this right here is where those two really butt heads. It's like being willing to step out in front of this falling knife, taking that, you know, going out on that limb and saying this thing's way too cheap, but then also understanding the technical aspect of it where it's like, look, like. You're, if you buy here, odds are it's probably going lower and it's going to keep going lower until the last contrarian is washed out. Um, but the original question was actually about valuation. And so when you, when you, when you mentioned that, you know, you don't, you don't want to give away too much of your secret sauce to your members. And I totally respect that because you know we have a premium service as well. So I totally get that. Maybe if I can invert the question and ask like, what are some ways that you see generalists like myself? Butcher the valuation process when it comes to mining companies, whether that's explorers or whether that's producers. Okay.
1: Well, I have an answer for this too. Uh, by the way, I have answers for everything. That doesn't mean they're right, but I, <laughs> I have answers for everything. Um, but there's another free article you can find on the website called The Adventures of Spreadsheet Guy. And this question, or the way you phrased it, it's not that your question is common, but the situation. Is actually yeah, yeah, yeah it's definitely common. Right? So th- I think the biggest mistake is that generalists have you know they're they're used to the broader markets where financial models work, you know, and if interest rates go up, then I want to do this and then, you know so on. Um, in mining, in particular, the junior end of the space, the it is so volatile. I mean, really, until cryptos came along, you know, Doug Casey used to famously always call them the most volatile assets on earth. Yeah. Um, And now he can't really say that anymore, given the way cryptos function. But if you want to say stocks, I think you could still say the most volatile stocks on earth, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps. But anyway, um, I mean, and other things drive these so much that are often intangible. And so your, your, your model, your spreadsheet is really actually quite dangerous. And this happens to me a lot. I'll be at a conference and somebody will come up and say, hey, I got this spreadsheet. What do you think of these companies? And I've I've done this and I got this model and I've tweaked this and I'm bullish on gold, blah, blah, blah. And you know, here's my my top 12 gold picks. And I'll look at them, and half of them will be great. Like he's got a good model, he's picked up some undervalued companies, and you know, they'll even maybe be in my portfolio or something. And the other half are utter dogs. The the spreadsheet doesn't understand that this management team has failed spectacularly at everything they've done in the past really hard to quantify, or or the spreadsheet doesn't understand the political risk in surrounding Niger right now or something, you know, or, or this. There's things there that you, I mean, sometimes my name, Lobo, means wolf in Spanish, and I joke about uh, having wolf whiskers that Twix. It's my version of my spidey sense, right? I, Sometimes my, my whiskers just twitch when I, there's something about the story that doesn't sit right. It just it just feels like a scam, even if I can't tell you what it is about it. I get it. I get, it. I get right? it. You know, just after doing this for a couple of decades, you know, you get lied to, you get disappointed, you get, you know, burned so many times. And you develop a sense, your own spidey sense, whatever you want to call it. And that I don't know what to say. You, I just don't think you can ever put that on a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And that's the number one starting point that many people start with, is okay. I'm interested in um, silver and copper and uranium, and I'm interested. I'm not interested in exploration. I'm only interested in producers, and you know, in these countries or something. And and so they'll have the spreadsheet. They'll plug everything in, and they will come up with a list. And. Uh, and that's not a bad thing to do. You have to have criteria. You need to know what you're interested in what you want. You know, I, I talked at the beginning about looking in the mirror and you know having that conversation with yourself about your risk, appetite, and all that stuff. so so you should have your goals and what you're looking for. But that list then is a starting point. it's it It shouldn't be all by itself a shopping list. And you need to do some due diligence. You need to start digging deeper. You know go to these conferences talk to the ceos talk to their geologists if they're there it's you know everybody's trying to sell you something but it's interesting how often if you ask sincere questions that you'll get relatively sincere answers or if or if or at least more information than you had before
0: that's probably a reason why commodities and the explorers on the on the smaller side are so volatiles because so much of the company's value is isn't things that you can't necessarily put in a spreadsheet. That's what makes. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm speaking the obvious, but that's that's what makes large caps like Coca-Cola so efficient because you just plug in your DCF and there's seven hundred thousand analysts that are you know plugging in their their earnings per share and Coke hits it you know within a penny or two each quarter. But Actually, all right, let me let me jump in because you just said yeah. something really really
1: important. It is what. I do and what people like us do it's higher risk and I get that that's why my my service is called the independent speculator not the independent sure thing or the independent safe bet right so and and that is a negative it is speculation you know that entails risk and for many people that's a negative I get that I'm not trying to you know gild the lily there but but what you just said is key. There aren't 700 analysts on Wall Street that have millions of dollars in computational power to throw at the same question you're addressing. Like almost nobody on Wall Street cares about the companies that I look at most of the time. Yeah. So I'm not saying I have the field to myself, but my competition is not, you know, BlackRock with a hundred million dollars of computer power to throw at the same problem I'm trying to analyze, right? Uh, and, And honestly, so many people, are just so lazy on the due diligence front if all you you know 80 20 rule Pareto all you have to do is care enough to ask a few hard questions and i think you're already going to be doing better than 80 percent of the other people out there in this space
0: i think what i need to do is go to these conferences like i think that's really a large a large chunk that i'm missing from getting up to speed and like really going from 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 zero to one it's like i need to be at at, at some of these conferences
1: well, you, you learn a lot, you know, and even if, you know, they're trying to sell you their stock or whatever, they'll still explain about the geology and, and it's, it's okay to say, I, I have no idea what you're saying. Please explain that or I've never heard of that before. What does that mean? And they'll say, okay, well, in layman's terms, but but you'll learn something, right? Oh, and by the way, you know, if you go to talk to another guy, their competitor, the next booth over, they'll often tell you what's wrong with the other guy's project and why their project is better. Or you know maybe they won't like literally throw them under the bus, but they will talk about their advantages. You know, our project, unlike others in our region, is low acid consumption. Uh, well, then you go back to the first one and say, well, what about your acid consumption? Oh yeah, well we're working on that, right? So you found something, right? You you assume bullshit, but there's still a lot of information there that yeah. as long as you're skeptical and you approach it like it's my job, to, sh- I'm gonna start swearing up a storm like a sailor here. But, (laughs) you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's my job to sort fact from fiction here. I found a less colorful expression.
0: Um, I I think it's worth doing. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you joined as primarily a writer slash editor. And as someone who writes online as well, I'm always interested in learning how others kind of perfect their craft and, and, and hone their craft. But really... What's fascinating about about you as a writer and editor is you're taking something complex like mining geology, these pre-feasibility studies. Which, if you haven't read one, it's it's like reading the most boring textbook alive, in most cases. And so, like, there's a real skill that I want to highlight in you in in being able to take that information and putting it into a way that's easy for a generalist or someone to understand and be entertained by. And so how have you developed your <laughs> writing craft and like how, how how have you learned to take this these complex things like geology and, and grades and you know perforations and all these things and translate them into something that you know even myself can understand
1: well i have written some fiction and i've embarrassed myself with some poetry so i was already a writer to begin with but i gotta gotta give credit where due um when when Porter Stansberry took over majority ownership of Casey Research, a mandate came down to lower the readability score of our writing. To you know, if you could shoot for seventh or eighth grade level, ideally that would be better. No higher than eighth grade reading level. Hmm. And I was—I won't say I was offended, but I just—I thought that was wrong. It was wrong-headed. We're writing about technical stuff. I'm sorry. The word uranium has three syllables in it. I can't shorten it right? You know, just to lower my flesh Kincaid reading score. Um, so I was sitting at this table, you know, having this meeting as, as, the, t- as the merger, takeover, whatever's happening. And, and I was like, well, you know, I'm a technical writer, and I'm explaining things, I think, as clearly as I can for, for lay audience. Um, but it's technical writing, it needs to be complicated enough to cover everything that needs to be covered. And, you know, the audience seems to understand it, and then one of the girls from the back office actually said, well, uh, sorry, Lobo, but um, actually, we get email all the time from people that say they love what you do, but they don't understand a word that you're saying. And I felt like the little turtle in Finding Nemo, you know, when he's doing all that surfer slang and, the, and he's like, oh, you're really cute, but I don't understand a word that you're saying. I felt like, wow, what do you mean? Like, why didn't anybody tell me? Well, you're busy. <laughs> So, you know, I thought I was communicating clearly. I thought I was doing such a great job. And it turns out that customer service is having to deal with people all the time and explain to them what I mean <laughs> because I was talking over people's heads. Right. So, um, you know, I, I know Porter's not everybody's favorite person, but it, it was him that really leaned on me to simplify my writing. And, and I did, and it really made a difference. And I, I, I don't have that problem anymore. The, 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 the feedback I get, and I am my own customer service. I get all of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think in five years, I've had one person tell me that I'm I'm excessively wordy and I use words like excessively wordy, but anyway. So if you use Microsoft Word, you yeah. can use that grammar thing. It'll tell you what the Flash Kincaid score is. Okay. Um, and there's other tools out there. Um, I, I have problems with Grammarly. Like I don't like Grammarly for its grammar so much unless it's obvious typos. Many of it's, if everybody used Grammarly, we would all write the same way. But there would be no style. There would be no individuality at all. Um, but there are tools out there and, and I have found that, okay, you can't shorten uranium. And if you put just the chemical symbol, U instead, it actually makes it less readable. People have to remember that U means uranium and not something else. Right. So, so there are limits, but you can use technical words like beneficiation and so on, because that's in the feasibility study. Um, but you can write them in short sentences. You know, anytime you see the word "and," consider whether those two clauses really need to be in the same sentence. And you can write short paragraphs, explain things, you know, bit by bit, piece by piece. Simplify, 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 as Henry David Thoreau said, or as in as Wendy McElroy said, simplify.
0: <laughs> I love that. I'm, I, I I geek out over over the writer's process, and um, you know, as someone that writes investing related things, sometimes technical. Um, I'm always trying to explain what I know in a way that a fifth grader or a fourth grader could understand. Um, And it's hard because like, you want to be excessive. You want to write a bunch so you can show the world how much you know and how smart you are. But it's totally not right. Like the inverse, you need to be as concise as possible to reveal to the world how much you understand about a topic so you can explain it in two seconds.
1: Yeah, the the goal is clear communication any i have no when i sit down to write something there is no word count goal it's neither i'm not trying to keep it short you know below this or i'm not trying to fill up the screen with pages or whatever there's never never have a word count goal it's always what do they need to know what do i need to say to explain it you know and how can i most effectively and simply communicate that
0: i like that a lot i like the no word count thing this has been a fantastic conversation. We covered way more ground than I originally anticipated. We, we went from, you know, all these mining things to writing back to, you know, these, these uh, hundred bagger lessons. Like this was, this, this was an awesome conversation and I appreciate you working with me, um, you know, in, 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 in scheduling this. And so before we go, there's a couple of questions I want to, I want to ask you that I kind of ask everybody. The first one is where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're on Twitter. That's how we connected. That's how I found you. Uh, so share kind of all your all the ways people can get in touch.
1: Well, due diligence guy, uh, Twitter is is an excellent way. Um, and I do actually try to not just tweet garbage or whatever mood I'm in, or, you know, here's a picture of my new sandals or something. <laughs> I, I'm not a news aggregator, but I do try to, like, I watch the markets every day. You know, I live and breathe this stuff basically 24-7, 365. Yeah, ask my wife, she'll tell you all about it. Um cool. So, so I, I, you know, I'm looking at this stuff anyway. If I'm reading the news about copper or geopolitics or whatever, it takes only a few seconds to tweet about it. You know, this, this comes up in my mind. This is important. This is significant. Hmm. This is what I'm thinking about. So, uh, my Twitter feed is actually, I think, one of the more polite and useful little corners of the Twitterverse, um, because the, the goal is actually to share, you know, important and or uh, insightful things. And other than that, I would just say, um, please stop by independentspeculator.com, and there's a free weekly newsletter we put out, um, and it can teach you what I do. You can see how I think, see if you want to hire me to be your due diligence guy from one of the paid services. And the one thing, I don't know if you'll like it or not. You may not like my style. Fine. But the one thing I do promise is that we won't spam you with a flood of advertisements in your inbox. We give you one email per week, and that's it so check it out
0: awesome then the last question i ask everybody if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present who would it be and why
1: gotta be hard it would be instant responses mark twain and jesus of nazareth yep and the latter i would want to know why didn't you write if you wrote your own stuff instead of everybody else interpreting it history would be so much simpler I'd love to sit down and talk to him about what he really meant. Um, and, and Mark Twain, I mean, there's many things, names I could say, but just what a, what a warm and intelligent human being, just, just a singular standout in history, who seemed just, just very human to me. There are other great writers out there, and many of them we don't know so much about, but this is recent enough history that my sense of the man He's like, I would have lo- I, I hate cigars, but I would have loved to sit down and talk to him after dinner and talk. And I would have put up with his foulest cigar smoke to do that.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. I love those answers. Well, Lobo, thanks so much for doing this. I can't wait to release it. And thank you for providing all this all this work and research and 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 really just knowledge for, for people like me to learn about the commodity space. Uh, you're doing you're doing great work and keep it up. Thank you very much. I'll do my best. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at Ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's T-I-K-R dot forward slash hive.